Hi, I'm Tim Sanova, and welcome to Work Shouldn't Suck Live, the morning-ish show. On today's episode, Lauren Ruffin and I are joined by Javier Torres. Javier is currently the director of the CERN Foundation's Thriving Cultures program, where he oversees a grant-making portfolio seeking to advance the Foundation's social justice mission. Prior to CERNA, he's done a number of things, including serving as the director of national grant-making at Art Place America, served as a senior program officer for arts and culture at the Boston Foundation, was the director of the Villa Victoria Center for the Arts, was a board member for Grantmakers in the Arts, and once, when we were both attending a conference in Los Angeles, he recommended a coffee shop that served one of the best cappuccinos I've ever had. Without further ado, Javier, welcome to the show. Good morning, y'all. How you doing? Good. I didn't know this about the LA coffee situation. It was G&B, right, Tim? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's in Grand Central Market. It's one of the most amazing, magical places. You get to go. It's open air. They make a lot of ice drinks that they actually use sort of cocktail shakers. And it just gets a special froth and a special flavor. The coffee beans are really roasted well. And so I'm a coffee junkie. Okay. You're always good for like a good restaurant recommendation. So I'm not surprised. I just didn't know that was a connection y'all shared. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So Javier, super excited to talk to you as always. You always drop some nuggets of wisdom, but first just a quick check-in. How are you doing and how's your community doing? Times are hard. I have been inside since March 1st when I flew home from the Four Freedoms Congress in Los Angeles. We were being given some flexibility by the office to decide whether we wanted to travel in to the office. And I realized that there were at least three staff members that lived in the sort of epicenter of the breakout between Westchester and New Rochelle. So I recommended to my team to stay home as much as I can. I think I'm really trying to stay focused on checking in with family and friends. I'm lucky enough that I live close to Prospect Park, so I take some walks and taking it day by day. I've been inside now. Friday will be six weeks. It's intense. It's hard. And I think it's just important for us all to do if we want this thing to wrap itself up so that we can begin to get back to some level of normalcy. When you popped on screen in the green room, I was thinking about, I know so much about what your life usually looks like with the travel and the working out. I didn't realize you've been inside for six weeks. How are you maintaining some sense of normalcy because you're on the go? All the time. I am fortunate enough that my good friend and trainer, Corey, lives not too far from me. We've made some agreements about how we travel through the city, and he is still coming to me three or four days a week to help me with workouts in my apartment, which has been a godsend because I'm fortunate enough to live in a full-service building in Brooklyn, but they closed the gym in my building, so I have no weights. But it's been good. He's been on days he's not here. He sends me workouts, and interestingly enough, good timing. I bought myself an Apple Watch four weeks before this all started. (laughs) And for anybody who has one, they have the rings of activity. You set these sort of daily goals about how many calories you're going to burn or how often you're moving. So that's kept me going. I try to keep a routine. I actually get out of my pajamas every morning and make sure that I get dressed, although I realize that sometimes it's nice not to. And usually by 7.30, I'm winding down. I'm an early morning guy. I get up at 5 o'clock to start my day and have my coffee and read the news. But that's the way that I've been trying to do it. And also quite frankly, limiting how many people I can stay in touch with. I'm fortunate enough that because of my work, I've traveled throughout the country and know so many amazing, beautiful people that are used to checking in with me once or twice a year, which is manageable. But now everybody wants to talk every other day. And it's just humanly impossible. Mm -hmm. I'm an introvert. I need to have some time alone to process my own feelings and thoughts. And I've been trying to figure out what are those little self-care moments and just being okay to say, I need to be still and not talk to anybody. 
prior to this, I was pretty, because I've been working remote for the last four years. And so getting dressed every morning wasn't as important to me. Yeah. <laughs> Full disclosure. But I'm like getting up and putting on clothes. I'm not putting on hard pants. Sure. But I, am right, putting right. On, I am at least changing from my evening wear to my <laughs> day wear. <laughs> so in terms of, you mentioned sort of everyone wanting to stay in touch. How are you communicating with your grantees? And can you share a little bit about what your thoughts and messaging is on sort of what a funder's support to their grantees can look like right now or how CERDNA is, is sort of approaching that? I think what I've tried to recognize is that everybody needs something different. We created sort of an institutional message that went out to all of our partners about the way in which we wanted to be of support and provide flexibility with grants, with grant reports and applications in this particular moment in time. There are a lot of foundations that are trying to be first out to figure out what is the thing we need to do? What is the fun we need to create? How do we do conference calls nonstop with our grantees so that everyone can process? It has been my sort of perspective that I don't want to take up any more of anybody's time. Folks are already being drained with additional needs in their communities. And so we sent two follow-up messages to our partners and to our direct grantees for the Thriving Cultures portfolio to say, you saw the message from our president, you know the flexibility that you have, but we don't know what we don't know. And we're not going to bombard you with requests for your time. You need to let us know what you need from us. And folks have been generous to reach out. Some folks wanted a little bit more of a sort of coached or facilitated conversation, which we were able to do for those that wanted to. But my personal perspective has been just to respect that these are all human beings that have full-on lives that they need to now manage and maintain both work and home in this crisis, which creates all kinds mm -hmm. of other limitations and requirements for who they are. The foundation is being measured. We're really trying to think about the three phases of response and not being reactionary. So we really start first with thinking critically about how do we look at unspent administrative dollars for this fiscal year for us that ends June 30th? How do we convert those to grant making dollars? What are the other sort of pools of money that folks expected to spend that they just aren't? So there were some communications grant making and membership grant making that was gonna happen that's being repurposed. Beyond that, we're really thinking of the immediate emergency response that needs to happen now for human beings who need to pay rent or a mortgage or get food or being able to buy some hand sanitizer or whatever it is that people need. And then there's the, as life somewhat begins to go back to normal, what is the investment that we need to do to ensure that nonprofits can get back off the ground? We've been thinking a lot about how do we keep people's payrolls open? And then finally, knowing that this is going to last for a long time, the impacts of this are going to fundamentally change our world. Some of our strategy and thriving cultures really anticipated this kind of disruption to our world. It's a world building strategy that's about imagining the systems and structures we need to build so that we can withstand these kinds of impacts. And then some of it is about the additional resources that we'll have to distribute or how we'll do those. It's a bit of a balancing act. We've taken a hit to the endowment, and there are some folks in the foundation that are interested in increasing spending because of the way that the foundation uses a 12 quarter average to determine its annual spending limit. Right now, we won't see the impact of that on our budget, but we will in two or three years when the full impact of this decline in the market actually is showing up in the 12 market average or the 12 quarter average. So it's a little bit of let's wait, let's listen, let's learn, and making sure that we are as present and available as possible for folks to know that we're available if there's something that they want and need. 
You mentioned world building and correct me if I'm wrong, Lauren Ruffin wears a lot of hats literally and figuratively, but one of the hats that she wears is as co-founder of Crux. And I remember something about you all working together on a world building game or exercise. Is that indeed correct? It is correct. <laughs> Great. Lauren can probably talk a little bit about yeah. Crux if you haven't before. <laughs> Yeah, no. I've spoken about it on the show, but I feel like everything that we talk about is about really designing a world, the world we want to see, and also recognizing the, the one that we live in to really pull it apart. And the game we did wasn't as much a world building game, but it was a game on venture capital investment and sort of coming up with profiles and having funders and investors and walk through various profiles to show the sort of hidden barriers, the implicit bias that exists and who's able to access capital. That was a fun game. It was, it was, it was a year so ago. What you're doing and, with Crux is about building future infrastructure. Yeah, exactly. It's a conversation that we've been in with Angie Kim and with lots mm -hmm. of others that have recognized for so long that our current systems don't serve our creative community. What are cooperative ownership models and alternative economies that really value love and generosity and abundance and assign values to those things as opposed to our current scarcity models that mm -hmm. have already been proven to be false? And I think we're seeing so many of those things, that ethos rise to the top right now. I applaud CERTNA because we talk a lot about all the various roles that you can play in movement building. And I think there were a lot of foundations who have burst out of the gate. And already after the CARES Act passed, people are talking about having sort of multiple phases of this because mm -hmm. it looks like we're not talking about what people are going to do in April, but we're talking about probably in terms of, and for the art, the art sector in particular, probably an 18 to 24 month recovery. I mean, I'm talking to artists who couldn't pay rent on this past Wednesday right. and won't be able to pay rent for the next probably, they won't have work probably for four to six months. So I think I really applaud you thinking about the long game. Has there been a conversation at CERDNA? I know that y'all are a funder who doesn't provide funds directly to individual artists. Has there been a conversation about revisiting that policy? Yeah. So it, it started before COVID became a pandemic or was named a pandemic that we knew we wanted to work with intermediaries that are part of our regranting strategy at the moment, and that we needed to file the paperwork as an institution to be able to do individual giving. That's heightened at this particular moment because when you really think about where does the emergency money need to go, people have just started GoFundMe accounts because they mm -hmm. have access to commercial kitchens, they have a car, and they're trying to get food money, gas money, protective masks, and cleaning supplies. For the folks that can't pay rent, can't buy food, can't get out of their home. And we can't legally, in most cases, give money to those GoFundMe accounts without making it extremely onerous on them and on mm -hmm. ourselves. So we are having that conversation. I think it's something that's absolutely necessary for us to do. As a 102-year-old institution who's currently undergoing a complete internal policy review over the course of the next 12 months. It's one of the things that our relatively new CEO, who's just a little over a year in, Don Chen, really asked us to do is to make sure that all of our policies across the foundation are in alignment with the values that we publicly state. Those are questions and an analysis that hasn't been done in a long time. So that it'll be part of that process, including other things like thinking about the maximum grants that we can make. Right now, our maximum grants are three years. There's consideration for going to longer and just having all of those conversations with our board so that we can move forward and make sure that we are living that social justice value, not just saying that we're a social justice foundation. Tim, do you have anything? Oh, yeah. I have so yeah. many questions, but I don't want to dominate the conversation. No, go, ahead. I can go, do ahead. That. go ahead, Lauren. 
So I had a conversation with one of our other, we've asked a couple of our guests this question as we're looking to the future. What do you think is going to happen? You know, we talked about that sort of 18 to 24 month timeline, but how do you think the world opens back up again? And how do you think artists begin to re-enter the world? It's dangerous, but do you have any predictions? So here's the thing. I, as a reader of Octavia Butler, I'm anticipating some ugly moments in our future. I've already started to see some of those with friends in Harlem that have been victims of hate crimes from people in their buildings, not even from strangers on the street. And then seeing the sort of multiple repercussions of what's happening in our society, where at least there was a small business that was able to support that individual in Harlem. They called the police, they filed a report, but the courts are closed. Mm -hmm. So that person knows somebody in their building who wants to physically harm them and cannot file a restraining order to keep them away because the legal system right now isn't up and running for that to happen. And so I think that I've heard of people's cars being broken into at stoplights because people are desperate right now. And I think we need to recognize that I don't understand how it is that when the market is in free fall, the federal government and the Fed are very comfortable stopping trading, but they haven't been able to see the equivalent around a mortgage utility and rent free that can benefit everybody. We're in free fall. Ain't nobody got no money. And so I'm concerned that we're going to be dealing with a much larger homeless population. I'm concerned that our current social infrastructure isn't prepared to deal with the homeless populations that we have. And that's going to have a lot of impact in our day-to-day sort of social interactions when people, again, are increasing in their desperation just to survive. The optimist in me has been really focused on connecting with folks that understand that thoughts and energy and ideas and stories can build worlds. The way that our world is ordered is because in general, a few men got into a room and decided that something was gonna happen a certain way. And so what does it look like for us to make decisions intentionally about how we're going to engage with those around us? Our neighbors, strangers on the street, people in the grocery store, and sort of getting clearer and clearer about our circle of influence and the impact that we can have. And if we're all paying attention to that, then there's a way for us to fundamentally shift what happens when the world tries to return to normal. Mm -hmm. There've been lots of conversations online to encourage folks to think about, yeah, you miss outside, but does the normal that you were used to, is that really something you wanna return to? The grind culture of working 10 to 12 hour days, working six days a week or even five days a week, that I think that this is a really powerful moment for us to realize, look, for example, as people of color, we've been told that or for black people in this country, that reparations weren't something that the federal government was capable of doing, that it would bankrupt this company, (laughs) this country. And now we're seeing that, oh, they can just write a $1,200 check to 85% of families across the country, plus $500 per child or dependent. So the money's always there. It's about the will. And we all are responsible for imagining, believing, and then shifting our own behavior in order to change that world so that these potentially really negative things that can happen don't take such strongholds in our society. There are a lot of power grabs in the federal government right now, and we've been thinking about the watchdogs and nonprofit advocacy organizations that need support because this is what governments and people in power typically do is that when there is chaos, it's the opportunity to consolidate power. And so I think we all just need to be diligent 
about those small things. It is where we have control. It is where we have power and not try to save the world, not try to be out there thinking that somebody like me, yes, I sit in a very privileged position, but I actually don't have millions of dollars in a bank account that I get to authorize to write checks to. So my prediction is things could be really ugly. My hope that I hold on to is I actually believe in human beings. And I believe that there are enough of us that are beginning to take that red pill, proverbial red pill from the matrix, are beginning to see the code and not just the design and thinking about the ways in which we can shift power and shift our society for the better. Confession. I've never seen the matrix. <gasps> wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You, you guys heard it here first. Yeah. Wow. I love that. It's uh, one of those like major cultural touchstones yes. that I, at this point, know enough about to know about, but yeah. I can laugh and smile and be like, Oh yeah, the matrix. <laughs> <laughs> never seen it. And now you're just not going to see it because you made it this far? Yeah, right. I'm actually, that's usually my secret is that I've never had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, but this is, wow. yeah. <laughs> this is, yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, actually but, kind of delicious. I have a friend whose mom has been so lazy. She doesn't want to cook and she's just been eating peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> wow, we are covering a lot of ground in this episode here. <laughs> I mean, no, no one expected those last two things. Wow. But yeah, I mean, I think I worry about that stuff, Javier. In New Mexico, we had the biggest gun sales last month. And one of my regular biking routes has passed one of the big firearms suppliers here. And the majority of gun purchasers were first-time gun owners. You can walk in and buy a gun here, which means you've got kids at home all day with people who probably don't have gun safes. To me, like, I just keep thinking about, like, what are the repercussions of this sort of moment where everyone is fearful? So, yeah, I think you're spot on. Are your colleagues and sort of, are they adjusting to remote work? Are you hearing anything from them? And sort of practically, how is certain a setup to work remote for the near future, for the long-term future? It has been a mixed bag. I have to be honest. I have peers who have lost friends this past weekend. I have a peer that just lost their father to COVID mm. this morning. There are folks on various teams that have been living with family to save money and now are in a position where they're trying to figure out, do I have enough bandwidth so that I can work all day on my Wi-Fi? There are folks that are in lower positioned roles inside of the foundation that have limited minutes, but they're expected to be on their phone all day yeah. making phone calls. So I'm grateful that the foundation created a new home working reimbursement policy and allocated a sizable amount of dollars per each employee, whether they were part-time or full-time, didn't matter. Everybody got to purchase the things that they needed. So I was able to get a mouse, a keyboard. I bought this amazing pad for my floor so that I'm not sitting in a chair all day and my legs don't get tired, an extra monitor for my laptop so that we can try and be as ergonomic as possible. <laughs> and so some folks are increasing their bandwidth on their Wi-Fi. Some folks are able to increase their minutes on their cell phone. And I think that's been helpful. But I've personally just been encouraging folks that we need to give each other grace. If that means you can't work a five-day work week, then fine. Let's restructure and don't work a five-day work week. If that means that these eight to 10-hour days are too long and you need to start later or end earlier, then we just need to figure that out. The first thing that the foundation did was to create a policy of unlimited sick days that we just needed to register them, but that they would not be deducted from our accumulated sick days based on our benefit packages. That's great. And so I've been reminding folks, sick days can be mental health days. Sick days can be emotional well-being days. You don't need to be going to the doctor or taking care of somebody who is coughing up a lung. 
you just actually need to think about your whole humanity. And so we've been trying to hold it together with that. One of my teammates is trying to move. It was supposed to move on April 1st. And there are lots of restrictions about how and when that can happen now in a place like New York City and trying to figure out how we get her into a safer, quieter space where she can both take care of work and take care of herself. But those are just the realities of this changing world. I've been reading articles about folks that are stuck inside now in physically abusive relationships. And oh, while I know. Yeah. that I know of, that's not happening inside of the Certa Foundation staff, but it's real. We just never know what people's living conditions are. And we make assumptions about the fact that just because they work at a high powered institution, that their lives are okay. But these are humans with real problems that are, we're all just trying to do the best that we can do. So it's a little bit of just emotional support, some financial support, and then providing as much flexibility as possible. One of the other conversations that came up recently in our staff, we have weekly staff meetings now where we try to bring everybody together, was the real question of, there were lots of plans that we had going on before this all started. And so folks are trying to keep those plans on track and do all this other work. And somebody finally rang the bell to say, Maybe we just press pause on anything that we were planning in advance, unless it actually addresses the current moment and needs of human beings, which I appreciated and now is an evolving discussion at Cerno. I think that's really smart. One of the conversations that I can't remember what we were talking about it internally at Fracture Atlas sort of popped up on the live stream last week was everyone is sort of issuing laptops to employees and in large cities in particular, you have a lot of folks who are living with unrelated roommates. And so there's been a rash of laptop theft that's happening, like sort of living with someone who's going to steal. Like sometimes the technology actually creates an unsafe environment for folks. So I think it's great yeah. that we're having that conversation as an organization because we just think about take a laptop, like this is great, doing you a favor. And it's actually right. not doing yeah. someone a favor not, at all. Absolutely. Yeah, I think so many of us, And that's one of the fundamental problems is that we don't think holistically about how we're caring for people. We sometimes fall into this idea of, oh, well, we have, so we can offer something that will fundamentally improve somebody's life, but we don't always think about the negative externalities. And it's part of what I admire about the work that the two of you have always done and that I think CERDNA really tries to do is to ask the folks that are going to be most impacted by this, whether or not it's a good idea before we pull the trigger on something. Is this what you actually need? Otherwise, maybe we shouldn't do it. Switching gears a little bit to ask you to put on your GIA board member hat, what are you hearing from the field writ large? And sort of how is GIA thinking about, you have a conference coming up in the fall that I saw, we've extended the deadline for proposals and that sort of thing. So I think sort of my penultimate question, gatherings, which is the thing the GIA does, how is the board, how is an organization approaching gathering right now. The bio that I sent you, as I mentioned, is outdated. So I haven't been a board member for GIA for about a year and a half, but it needs to be outdated. But I am the co-chair for this year's conference. So the question is still totally relevant. (laughs) No, I mean, I think what I'm hearing nationally is that everyone's just trying to figure out there are folks that are worried about the big institutions that generate a good amount of earned revenue, and especially the mid and smalls that rely on that. I think some of the more critical thinkers are recognizing that Any impact that we're seeing on organizations is exacerbated when you get down to the humans, whether it's the staff or the contract workers that were hired for those performances. If the foundations aren't given the flexibility for payments to be made, whether or not the events happen. And those are some of the sort of transitions that we need to go through, that we need to think through, is that while we funded for a certain amount of engagement, the reality is people just need to get paid. 
and we need to forgive. And so I have been letting folks know wherever possible, just like GIA, things are moving to virtual. So in a couple of weeks, I am doing a webinar on new economy for artists with Angie Kim and with Dr. Jeffrey Hayes from Three Walls Gallery in Chicago, organized by GIA to really think about what are the forward-thinking ideas for the infrastructure that artists need to be able to capitalize on their contributions to society. So I'm excited for Angie and Jeffrey to be able to have that conversation because I think they're two of the foremost thinkers along those lines, recognizing what appropriate support actually looks like. From an event perspective, we've already raised as a committee whether we should be continue planning for GIA. Some folks, when the deadline got extended by two weeks, were like, why bother? This isn't going to work out. And the reality is that contracts were signed for hotels. Mm -hmm. So until the hotel says that they won't be legally open, we kind of have to keep planning at least through Labor Day for a November event until we have a better sense of what's going to happen. The good news is that the theme that was selected for the conference is still relevant. There are lots of conversations about, do we move the convening to the springtime? In the case that the hotel will let us out of the contract, they'll be happy to have us on another date. So that's the whole operational question, too, about a shift in programming that impacts the staff and impacts other conferences that people might have anticipated they'd be participating in in the spring, because this is typically happening in the fall. Beyond that, there have been conversations about, does the full conference move to virtual? Many of us just think it's unrealistic. Allied Media Conference just announced that they are moving their full conference to being virtual after not having done one last year for their Christmas year as they thought about the next generation or iteration of their organization and how it would support the field. I believe in that community figuring out how they're going to do that well because they've historically been great at reimagining the way that people connect around important conversations or conversations that are important to them. And I have great skepticism about this kind of engagement effectively replacing our ability to do certain things, learn certain things, and have authentic conversations. So I don't know. I mean, we're moving forward and trying to continue to provide content, whether that's in written form, whether that's a webinar or a virtual conversation. There have been national conference calls for funders to come together to organize, collaborate, coordinate. And so all of that's happening, just like you were asking about the, I don't know if you asked before or after we started the official stream about the $75 million fund that's been created to support individual artists that's being led by Creative Capital and USA Artists, which I think is exciting and great and fantastic. But the other conversation that's being had is, do those two organizations actually get the money to those that are most in need? Are they supporting the radical cultural organizer in the South? Do they recognize them within their criteria? And if not, does there need to be another entity with a whole other fund that is going to support? So I know there's been conversation about the participants in the Intercultural Leadership Institute mm-hmm. that include the National Association of Latino Arts and Cultures, the PAI Foundation, First Peoples Fund, and Alternate Roots to have a complementary fund that would support those artists that wouldn't typically be eligible for a Creative Capital or U.S. Artists Award. So I think it runs the gamut. Again, I don't think anybody really knows what they're doing, as is the case for most of us as adults. We think that we're supposed to have the answers, but most of us are making it up as we go. Some people are just more comfortable trusting their instincts and speaking up than others. Some people like to move really quickly and others are going to be slow and measured in trying to take in as much information as possible and coming up with a more strategic or informed decision. I don't know if I actually got to your question. No, you absolutely did. 
Well, and I think that was a great way to end our episode, Javier. Thank you so much for being with us today. I have enjoyed riding along with your conversation. It's one of those things where I'm like, wow, this is fascinating. Wait, I should be asking yeah, some sorry, questions. Sorry, I was, no, 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 I was this, a Jabberwocky on No, this, this is great. Thank you so much for being on uh, the you. show today. Really great to see you both. Stay safe. Continue the Work Shouldn't Suck Live adventure with us on our next episode when we're joined by Deborah Cullinan, Chief Executive Officer of Yerba Buena Center for the Arts. Miss us in the meantime? You can download more Work Shouldn't Suck episodes from your favorite podcasting platform of choice and rewatch Work Shouldn't Suck Live episodes over on workshouldn'tsuck.co. If you've enjoyed the conversation or are just feeling generous today, please consider writing a review on iTunes so that others who might be interested in the topic can join the fun too. Give it a thumbs up or five stars or phone a friend, whatever your podcasting platform of choice offers. If you didn't enjoy this chat, please tell someone about it who you don't like as much. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.